I'm still here in California and I am loving it. The great thing about this state is that you're so close to so much. Beaches, mountains, deserts, forest, wine country. It's got a little bit of everything. Last weekend, we drove to Sonoma, which, let's be real, thrives off facilitating a classy version of day drinking. If you're ever headed there, I highly recommend eating at a restaurant called Valley, best meal I've had in forever. Tomorrow, we are moving on again, headed south to Los Angeles, which is fitting because my guest this week spent many years in Hollywood. Scott Neeson has lived many, many lives. He was born in Scotland and raised in Australia in a small industrial town with a high unemployment rate. As a young man, he managed to get an entry-level job as a movie theater projectionist, and from there had one of those legendary ascents to the role of president of 20th Century Fox International. It was as glamorous as you'd imagine, think, private jets with Hollywood's biggest actors, but suddenly seemed insignificant after a trip to Cambodia in 2004. Shaken by a trip to a landfill where he saw hundreds of children scavenging to survive, Scott left his Hollywood career, moved to Phnom Penh and founded the Cambodian Children's Fund, an organization that now educates almost 2000 children and supports families with community-based projects. Scott and I discussed the celebrity tantrum that gave him the nudge needed to quit and pursue his calling in Cambodia, the meaningful milestones that make the anxious, sleepless nights worthwhile, and the real secret to a happy life well lived. So I'm from the UK, but I've been in the US for about eight years now, eight and a half years. Right. Yeah, I was born in Scotland. And... Oh, were you? Yeah. I grew up in Australia, lived in America, Los Angeles for 10 years, 11 years, and all the passports you could imagine. Yeah, I mean, I knew that you grew up in Australia. I didn't realise that you were born in Scotland. Wow, that you do have a lot of... <laughs> yeah, I love going back there. It's such a beautiful place. Oh, yeah. Except for the weather, of course. <laughs> Los Angeles, I mean, goodness me, Scotland's miserable in the weather. I know. For Brits, you know, Los Angeles is the real treat. Sunny every day. November through to August, it's cold, you know. <laughs> Where are you right now? I am in Los Angeles right now, yeah. Oh, nice. Well, that's exciting. To rewind, let's jump in with the question I like to ask everybody, which is, where did your love of travel originate? Growing up in Australia, and I hadn't travelled very much, and I went to uh, Bali with a friend of mine. And this was well before Bali was developed. It was, um, goodness, about 1980, I think. And it really rocked my world. It was beautiful. Um, you know, foreign cultures and this beautiful experience, tropical island. And after that, I had such a bug for travel. I went back to Bali and learned Indonesian, travelled through the islands there and realised that I'd got a serious travel bug. And so I continued travel, went back to Scotland where I was born. I went for a drive up the west highlands uh, up the coast and just haven't stopped and I was very fortunate too when I came to Los Angeles my job involved a lot of travel so I got to spend a lot of time going to Europe Asia uh, South America Central America it was very fortunate and that really gave me a taste for it amazing wait did you just say that you learned Indonesian yeah I learned Bahasa when I was um, in Indonesia it's, it's a very simple language too relatively simple and uh, that helped me travel through some of the other islands. I headed east through Lombok and Surabaya, those areas. And that, it helped enormously. Really got into the experience of staying with locals, um, backpacking it all the way through. 
Oh my God, wow, I'm so impressed with that. Well, it must have been an incredible experience to go to Bali or all of Southeast Asia really before it became like a backpacker hub. Oh my goodness, Bali back then was just beautiful. You could walk um, between the, what are now the tourist areas, it was walk through rice paddies, sandy beaches to get between uh, two of the small towns there. Nowadays, it's three or four lanes each way. Yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking to go back now and seeing how much it's all changed. But, um, you know, time goes on. I was looking for the next place, the next undiscovered place. Exactly. So I know you were born in Scotland, but you were raised in Australia, right? In kind of a small industrial town that had a high unemployment rate. Very high, yes. What kind of future did you envision for yourself when you were young? Well, you know, when you're in that, well, certainly in my case, it was far more about um, just getting a job and working. And the unemployment rate amongst youth was over 50%. So very few of my friends had jobs. And going on to unemployment benefits was a natural course. I had no judgment either way. When I left school, I went on to the government unemployment. I didn't have high school certificate. And the governments had a program whereby any employer who would take you on they, they would pay, the government would pay half the salary for six months in order to get me job experience. So my first day on the program, they sent me for a job interview at a film company. And it was basically an assistant in the office. And in the evenings, I would run projectors at the drive-in movies or the cinemas. And that was the first job. And that's kept on going from there. It was really fun too. A really good group of people back then. It was fabulous. That sounds great. And it feels very fated because you really worked your way up in that industry to landed the role of president of 20th Century Fox International, which is a huge job. Everybody loves one of those stories of, you know, a scrappy underdog who becomes successful. But I just want to know how on earth you did that. <laughs> it's quite the ascent. Uh, I was really driven in the work and I loved uh, I loved working. I never had a passion for film, but it grew on me really. It grew me a great deal. And uh, the marketing distribution was fascinating, especially because of, uh, it was international. I was dealing with so many different cultures and releasing a film, say, uh, Braveheart. Now, what that means in Japan, for example, and what would make people want to see it is totally different from the US or, say, Germany, um, Brazil. And being able to travel to those countries and hear the locals describe the experience and why it appealed to them and it was so different so I really got into the groove of that and uh, I had a terrific team working around the world with me. It's so fascinating that you had to develop kind of a cultural fluency to understand what else did you discover? It was quite difficult because it was an an iconic American uh, product which is of course film and seeing how they would react to the cultural aspects of it um, how it would appeal to people. And I remember we had a, there was one time we had Titanic and when it was in production, it was going crazy budget-wise. It was budgeted to be 100, which was one of the biggest, but it was the biggest budget and ended up exceeding 200 million. And the company was going to settle off rights, either North America or the rest of the world. And I remember I put up a, a furious fight to keep international. and trying to explain, for example, you know, Japan, I knew it would work because it was a huge epic scale uh, tragic romance, which was very appealing to the Japanese. And um, in the UK, of course, the true story and 
two big stars and listening to the countries and just how different the film would be perceived. It was um, a real learning experience about how their cultures would come together. And it's something I think is getting forgotten in today's world with streaming, which is so ubiquitous, universal in nature. And I think there's not that same understanding of culture and a sense that the US culture will, is pervasive and it's not it's, you know, such a different understanding, appeal, um, the way it fits into local cultures. Mm-hmm, totally. And it must be interesting for you now to see the rise of Netflix and all these streaming services. It really is. And catching up <laughs> with my friends who were in the studios and uh, I mean, it's been devastated. My old alma mater, 20th Century Fox, of course, has gone, was sold to Disney and all these changes going on. Yeah, it's uh, sad to see the demise of the film industry as such, the studios themselves, but yeah, progress goes on. I have bigger fish to fry these days. And, you know, you seem like a, a down-to-earth guy and from humble beginnings. What was the experience like for you of going to Hollywood and being in this very specific culture of people who were maybe, well, I don't want to, you know, judge, but maybe a bit self-important, very fancy. What was that like? It was, you know, the great thing, coming from the humble beginnings, I was never um, able to take it too seriously. It was never um, the centre of my universe. So I did feel like a, a spectator on the outside a lot of times in a, in a really uh, good way. And the people I worked with were fabulous, my old bosses and my, uh, the people that were around me, my own team in the marketing department. So it was a lot of fun. It really was. We had a lot of successes, which makes it more pleasant again. And, and when you're dealing with so many different films, 20, 25 films a year, from small independent films up to the big blockbusters, some terrible films that you, you know, we had to put out there for a period of time. And, and also <laughs> dealing with the actors was great. Actors, directors was terrific. I never, thankfully, I never bought into the Hollywood thing. In, in fact, most people do not, but there was that, um, that nucleus of those who believe that film and Hollywood is the centre of the universe and they're so into it, whether they be agents or some studio heads. But on the whole, it's uh, very, most people are pretty grounded. Well, it's funny as well that, you know, you adapt, right, to fit in with your surroundings so when you're in this totally different world where maybe you're cat you're flying business or first class or maybe even private jets like it changes it changes you in so many ways but perhaps you you always felt that there was a core of you that remained mostly the same and unaffected by that yeah well i was always getting a kick out of flying uh, private jets for example especially if it was actors I never got to fly on my own, of course, but with uh, some of the big actors when I was traveling with them, um, being on the private jet, but it never felt like an entitlement or it didn't feel normal. So I was always very excited about doing that. Um, you know, with Braveheart was with Mel Gibson, Harrison Ford, um, What Lies Beneath, Robert Redford. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole host of them. And just once they're on the plane, they're just such different people, very grounded. Um, you know, in the case of Mel Gibson, would. Once the plane was up at the right altitude, he cut bring out the poker table, would sit around and play poker till, you know, we had to land again and it was really fun. <laughs> but it never seemed like it was an entitlement, never seemed like the norm. It was that it felt like that being in that rare stratosphere for a period of time. I couldn't imagine it would be permanent. 
It's a bit like me when I get offered press trips and they're to some extremely opulent hotel. It's that moment when I get shown to my room and I have to pretend like I'm not shrieking inside. I have to be like, oh, it's very, it's very nice. Like I'm used to this kind of life. <laughs> I think it's like Disneyland. It's great to go and visit there, but you don't want to live there. You wouldn't want to live in the place. And that was the, the difference. As long as you can see it as being um, not quite the reality. I think it's when people get caught up in, in that. And, of course, the salary was good too. So it would always be flying first class around the world, going to the film festivals, uh, but it never had a sense of permanency. I just felt very lucky to be in that position. And then after a decade or so at 20th Century Fox, you got a new contract with Sony, but you decided that you wanted to take a little break and see some of Asia. What was it about Asia that appealed to you? Well, having grown up in Australia, Asia was by far the closest uh, region. And there's something about Asia. It's got a real, a wonderful feel. It's the part of the Buddhism. It's uh, still a fairly young region, still developing. On the whole, the people were just fabulous, really easy to engage with. So there was a Buddhism part especially that I liked, both directly as well as the um, how it affected people and their outlook. The, the Buddhist areas of Thailand and um, Angkor Wat. I'd previously been to Bodhavadur in Indonesia, and that was amazing. So that really got me motivated. And so I went to Thailand and moved up to, I was going to Angkor Wat, and back then you had to get into Phnom Penh before you could get to Angkor Wat. There was no direct flight. So I spent a few days in Phnom Penh, and that was when I, you know, I started my beginnings of the philanthropic work quite unintentionally. Yeah, I was going to say, when you set off, were you intending for it, this trip to have a philanthropic aspect or was it meant to be just a vacation? Not at all. It was meant to be partly soulful, spiritual journey, um, partly just uh, to spoil myself after 10 years of very hard work and very few vacations, wanted to indulge. But there's something about Cambodia that was really intoxicating, really a, a wonderful place. But it was um, with this undercurrent of all the tragedy of their history back in the 70s, having lost 20-something percent of the population in just three, three and a half years. And the adult population, everyone over the age of 40 back and 40 years old, had either been children or born into the Pol Pot Khmer Rouge regime. And so there was so much post-traumatic stress there. And it was very, very obvious once you got to talk to people. And families back then were all broken up. So the children of the poor pot days never really knew their families and they've grown up and now their parents and the kids you can sort of tell are lacking that connection, uh, any sense of affection, uh, an understanding of their cult values, uh, wisdom, family structures. It was very broken and it took a while before I really understood how, how much that affected society there because it's ubiquitous. I mean, almost essentially every adult there Every parent was a survivor of the Pol Pot days. Did you know that before you arrived or did you learn most of the history there? I knew the history and I knew about the Pol Pot, um, how he killed all the uh, intellectuals, educated government workers. And the history was there, but not a real understanding of what that would mean in terms of the social impact. It was just a part of history, which I learned about and went to the killing fields and tool slang and those places, and it was appalling. But I was unaware of the impact it had and was still happening. And so 
during this trip, you started looking into the charitable options in the country. And what did you discover? Well, the first uh, lesson, I, I had a lot of disposable income and I wanted to do some good. The most obvious um, poverty was on the riverside area of Phnom Penh, where all the tourists go. Children begging, um, selling flowers or books, carrying babies. And it didn't take too long before I realised that the children weren't getting the money. The people that were basically running these kids would take the money. And out of part frustration, because I did want to help somehow, I asked a, a friend of a friend who was running a charity if there's an area where I could help that didn't have any any plan Bs and any underlying sort of a middleman. And he gave me an address, and I didn't realise it was the landfill at the time. So it was it was a real, real shock. Most of the locals didn't even know it existed. Um, it took the driver a long time. I mean, who goes to the landfill on their vacation? It's not really a done thing. Right. And so when you arrived at this landfill, you see all of these children who are living there and scavenging and just trying to survive. Yes. How did you feel? That must have been completely overwhelming. It was overwhelming. The, f- the first thing was far more my own um, the effect it had on me, and that was just the uh, visceral uh, feel of the place, the smell, uh, the sludge underneath, and the heat was unbearable. It was, it was well, oh my goodness, in Fahrenheit, somewhere over 140 degrees because it's a, obviously it's a tropical country, but with, a, with garbage, a landfill, the, the garbage decomposes, gives off methane, and it burns all the time. So there are fires popping up and they'll burn for weeks or months at a time. So you have to be very careful where you stood. And there's an incredibly, incredibly hot. Um, and that was the first thing I sort of confronted me. Then seeing these children there, a lot had been left there or orphaned and made their own way there. And quite a number were there with families. Some would work there and then go home off the landfill where they, they lived around the perimeter Others would sleep on the landfill, and um, yeah, it was really hard to take. And unfortunately, by my own design, I went to a place where there's no one else really helping, and that's what really, really that was a big impact because you get confronted with you get confronted with your own values because you can either try and help or you can walk away, um, and you know that if you do walk away, there's no one else is going to jump in there and help and there's no one that you can call. There's no um, uh, child protection services. There's no um, government organisation. So that really bugged me because I, I felt uh, an obligation, especially given my very privileged life, felt an obligation to help. Yeah, I mean, it, it must be so difficult to walk, to walk away from that and for it not to haunt you for the rest of your life. So I can understand how you were so moved to, to try and help. What was your relationship to philanthropy before all of this? And none whatsoever. I, I gave to some of the more obvious charities like uh, World Vision, uh, um, the National Resource Defence Council, but I never gave too much. And I, th- I think it was what I considered maybe uh, classic reasons for not giving. One was not knowing where the money would go or always read about big salaries, wastage, big um, self-serving grants. There was also the concern that, um, well, the feeling that because it's on the other side of the world, um, it wasn't my problem. 
it was um, it was someone else's problem, nothing I could do about it. The more existential belief, of course, is that uh, even if I gave all my salary away, there'd still be suffering in the world. There'd still be um, poverty on my TV screen. And that was always a good reason not to give. But when you're standing there on the landfill and there's this child in front of you, none of that matters because you do know where your money's going. Uh, it is my problem. Well, it was right there and then. And um, I can help. I can help. And if I didn't, then no one else is going to. So all of my prejudices were, were gone. So you have this moving experience. However, you have this job that you're supposed to start shortly. <laughs> so you go back to L.A., but you can't get the Cambodia out of your mind and these kids out of your mind. So what, what was the plan? The, well, the, the, there and then on the, uh, when I was there, I met a young child. I couldn't tell if it was boy or girl. It was a girl, but swathed up in all their clothes because of the heat and because there's no place to leave your belongings and met with her, found her mother. And I managed within about an hour or 45 minutes with the help of the translator to find them a place to live and sure that I deliver food and check on the girl's attendance at school. She'd never been to school. And her little sister was terribly, terribly sick with typhoid. And I got her into hospital. And that's what I think that affected me just as much as the sight of the landfill because it never occurred to me that I could actually help. And I went back to the hotel and I was fascinated by my ability to help. It was a sense of, um, it was you know, the saviour complex because I turned this child around. I turned around the life of this child profoundly. And it felt great. I never realized I had that ability. So as one does, I went there the next day and did the same, took the same uh, translator friend with me and set it up the same, um, the same process of two, three other families. And that's when it started to get very uh, addicted, get into my blood. And having worked in business and uh, entrepreneurial enterprises, you begin to think about what you could do on scale and being able to scale it up. So I went back and part of me didn't want to go back. I really wanted to stay there and forget the business. But having been 26 years, I didn't want to have a midlife crisis, which were so common in Hollywood. It did uh, strike me. It could be midlife crisis. It could be a sense of uh, white privilege. It could be so many things. And I thought, I'll give it a year. And if it's real, it will still be there in a year. Otherwise, I can continue my job and send a lot of money over to uh, the people I trusted there to keep this going. And I guess I cheated because I made a trip back to Cambodia every month. So it's basically three weeks on the job, one week in Cambodia, which didn't go down well with the studio, but it was something I couldn't avoid. I cheated too because in that year, I sold everything. I just knew I was going to move. Part of it was uh, I could do so much more on the ground. Part of it was because, you know, when things went wrong, they went so badly wrong. It, was, it wasn't about having a bad movie release in uh, a foreign country. It was about a child who was supposed to be collected, um, interviewed, getting into a better, better life program education to be forgotten about. And it was so disturbing that this child who'd been promised this new life and some had forgotten to go collect the child at a particular point on the landfill. And those sort of things really kept me awake at night. I quit my job. And in December 2004, uh, I 
quit and sold everything, made the move. That was 17 years ago. Yeah. Wow. Yes. I feel like so much of life is gray area and we weigh and measure things. But I think there comes a moment where we know the decision that we have to make. Was there like an epiphany moment for you where you were like, okay, I'm quitting Sony, I'm moving? Yes. Well, the epiphany moment, which is, uh, it was almost, uh, well, I think it was um, almost a religious kind of moment. I was, I had flown to Japan with a big actor. He was um, doing publicity. Flew there. He was set up for the publicity and I flew on to Phnom Penh and I was down at the landfill with one of the grandmothers and she'd take me to where these four children were and they were incredibly sick. They had, I think it was typhoid, and they'd been left there by a family some days early. No one knew who they were. No one wanted to take them to the hospital because it cost money and they had to work. And I was, I was really lost. I, was, uh, I didn't know what to do. It was all new to me. And all of a sudden it felt like, well, it was my responsibility. So at that moment, my phone rang and my office in Los Angeles patched through the actor in Tokyo and his agent, and they were furious. And the actor told me he wasn't going to get in his private jet because they'd put the wrong amenities on the private jet. And my previous life started to look kind of absurd. And to top it off, he actually said to me, you know, he, he said, I don't want to be difficult, but my life wasn't meant to be this difficult. He said, uh, and when you've got these kids at your feet and you hear those words, I mean, if you want a sign from above, if you want to understand the right way, then that was the moment. And it was the great part was it took away all my doubt and all my concerns about quitting the job. It was like someone had blessed me to move forward. It was a wonderful feeling. I no longer felt any doubt, any um, self-doubt about what I was doing. And that was, uh, that was the deciding moment. I went back and I quit that Monday. See, it's pe people losing all perspective because they're used to this opulent life. Yeah, I want to thank them one day for helping me with my decision and inviting me to come out and see what the other part of the world looks like. Mm. You're, you're faced with this really complex situation with these kids and it would be easy to just feel completely paralyzed. I imagine that I would feel that way. So how did you peel back all the layers to find out what the issues were that had brought them to the dump in the first place and then how to solve them? Yeah, well, I went in there quite naively because getting these children off the landfill, ideally if they had families or um, extended families into school and paying the rent, it was, it seemed so simple. And I began to realize that it was far more complex than ever than I than I thought, and I think the best um, the best approach was understanding how little I knew. So I took that on board straight away. So getting the kids into school was easy, but they would stop going after a while, and peeling back the many layers of the onion to understand why. Um, the first was obvious in retrospect was that the kids were working because the families needed money either to put food on the table, to feed siblings, um, help sick family members. And without some sort of compensation, the kids couldn't go to school. I knew I couldn't give cash, so we had I put in place other programs. Um, the most obvious was giving rice and food um, each, each um, or twice a month to families that would allow the child to go to school, so they're essentially even. Um, 
there was still a high absentee rate and realised children had to stay home and look after sick parents, grandparents a lot of the time or look after the house. And so we started a medical clinic, very, very small at the time, just one doctor twice a week, and that helped as well. Then there was kids who had to stay home to look after younger siblings. So I started a daycare program and nursery um, so that the little ones could be taken care of during the day and not taken to the landfill where they'd be running around on their own unsupervised. So that helped too. And continually putting in place programs in response to absentee issues and understanding what they were. And it continued to grow. There were so many. And we ended up with something like 40 programs of different different levels, different complexities, including a, a refinancing of debts. And it took me a lot longer than it should have to understand that the majority, the vast majority of families there had lived in the rural areas. There were subsistence farmers and they had got themselves into debt almost completely through medical issues and they would sell off land and whatever assets they had and they would borrow money for medicines hospital bills interest rates for the poor the community loans loan sharks were 10 percent to 20 percent a month so a 300 dollar loan would be a dollar 50 a day every day in interest alone and that's what the kids were earning in some cases. So by taking on those loans and allowing the parents to pay back uh, the charity at a 0% interest or 1% interest, it freed them up enormously because the previous debts were for a lifetime and there was no way of paying off the principal if you're paying a dollar a day every day in interest. And there's also a remarkable reduction in the quality of life for the family. In the families where there's this crushing debt, the fathers would be absent, very high level of domestic violence, alcoholism, other substance abuse. And I could, I understood why after a while, because in a patriarchal society, if the father can't provide for his family, can't keep them safe, um, unable to fulfill his obligations, um, I think there's a tendency to exert his patriarchal power through either violence and substance abuse, or uh, he would give up and just run away, take off and leave the family behind. When we had a financial stability, uh, I could have conversations with these fathers saying the debt will be paid off in, say, October next year. Would you like to start a small business, other loan, buy back your family land, and have that one conversation with the father? There was a real change in attitude there. They could take on a sense of pride. Um, He would be the one that could go home and tell the family what was being done, um, how he's going to start his own business, how they get out of poverty. And it made a real difference to the level of um, violence and substance abuse. It was noticeable. I haven't quantified it, but it was certainly there. That's so interesting. I mean, it feels like all these pieces of a puzzle that must have been ticking around in your brain. I'm sure you have many sleepless nights trying to figure out this constellation of issues. The emotions and the, the cultural interactions, social, even you know, breaking down the family dynamic, what was causing these issues. And even now in this community of, I think, 3,000 families where I work, there's only about 10% have a father in the home, I mean, a father that is present and contributes to the family income. 
the level of absentee fathers and uh, alcoholism is phenomenal. Admittedly, that's where the, the most fractured families are going. If you have to sell up and move to a landfill, then obviously there's a lot more underlying issues. And I know from reading an interview with you that um, some of these kids end up on the landfills because the father abandons the family, the mother gets remarried, and the new husband is like, I don't want to raise somebody else's kids. That's exactly right. And it, it, it shocked me. That was one of the things I had trouble processing was that I always considered the mother's nurturing instinct to be unbreakable, that there was a, almost in the DNA, the fabric, that a mother would do everything to protect her child. But clearly in the Paul Pop Khmer Rouge days, when their family's been split up, children had to fend for themselves, that, that was lost. And mothers were far more um, motivated to find a new husband and get that sense of security. And there's a real stigma about uh, a mother being a single mother. It's just not acceptable. I think it's perpetuated by the men, to be frank. I think they're perpetuating this stigma. Um, but there was this need to find a new man to bring in there. And at best, you know, he'd be, he would treat the children badly. And at worst, he just wouldn't allow them in the house. So we had a lot of children come in that way. That's really sad. I mean, the work that you're doing is so important. And I think the same about activists. You know, it takes a certain mindset and a certain person to be able to carry this heavy load of, of what's happening in society. How do you look after your own mental health while also doing all these good things? It is difficult because yeah, these days we also have a, a child protection unit. So we're responsible for uh, most serious abuse cases against children nationally. Uh, come into the our agency, we have 20 seconded police. So we are seeing the worst of the country in terms of the you know, child abuse, um, the homicides. But it's essential you savour the victories. You know, I've seen nearly, goodness, 800 of our students go through the education. Nearly 300 have gone from working on the landfill through university. And they're just such great kids. They've... Um, they go through a leadership program, so they understand human rights, women's rights, children's rights, public speaking, use of social media, and they're the change makers. And that's something I'm very proud of. That takes away a lot of the um, the pain and the angst of the other things. Yeah, that's incredible. I was going to ask you, are there any moments or milestones where you really feel the difference that you're making? I've been to a lot of university graduations, and I have... Uh, an outrageous number of photographs, both from the earliest days to now, and seeing the the transformation is is remarkable, uh, especially for the girls. The boys, we have some a lot more issues keeping them in school. Why is that? I it's a good question. I still haven't quite got to, but I think it's largely a lack of male role models in the community. There are so few good functioning fathers, and they don't have those role models. The boys aren't leaving to get a job to support the family. They're just leaving, in many cases, not doing anything. The girls tend to leave because the families need them to work. But we lose three boys for every girl in our education program once they hit mid-teens, early teens. Um, so still trying to address it. But trying to find a core of good male role models is difficult. It's difficult. But um, you just see these transformations are remarkable. Just had some messages this morning. One of our boys, young men now, just came back from um, Paris. He did a, his master's there on a scholarship. One just got back from Tokyo. He's finished his degree in 
electrical engineering. We have five of our young women in Australia on scholarship studying down there. And there's just so much to be um, proud of. Oh, man, that makes me feel a bit emotional. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, and some of these kids that um, I had the most um, torturous interactions from they're still working on the landfill and physically walking them off and finding where they lived and where they were sleeping um, and yeah, being with them through the worst times. And now they're just wonderful kids. They've been through university. They're successes in every way. One has her own radio show on FM. Uh, another one's making movies, making films, uh, very successfully too. Yeah, so that that's where you managed to, well, I managed to get rid of some of my angst and stress. And I know that you have really personal relationships with quite a few of these kids. How does that impact the way that you see your future? I mean, it's it's really is what keeps me there. Mm-hmm. Um, children, and nowadays with the, the grandmothers, we have our own grandmother program. So the grandmothers, they started off where I was helping them personally because they were the lowest of the social ladder, too yeah. sick to work and begging from other garbage scavengers. So I was helping them, but it struck me that there was a real need for our students, these little kids and uh, youth, to understand more about um, wisdom, values, everything their parents um, hadn't experienced. So the program became we would look after the grandmothers with a stipend and food, and a group of four or five students would take care of the grandmother, visit her twice a week, um, check in on a practical sense, make fresh water, food, any health problems. Uh, and the grandmother was encouraged to talk about the good old days, how families were structured, how there was respect for the mother, um, there was compassion, interest, empathy. Um, and it's worked wonders. We now have 70 of these grandmothers from all around the landfill, and they're such a spectacular bunch. They have got, they, they become kids themselves, they become so energized, enthused, and childlike. We, um, in one of the meetings, we had asking the grandmothers what they wanted to do next. They've been to the pagoda, they'd met some of the royalty, and the, a group of them, including a 98 year old, wanted to learn how to swim. And so they started swimming lessons, you know, age 90 years old, 95. And they were just like kids in the water, splashing each other, carrying on. And when they got their swimming certificate, they then badgered me to go to the water park. They wanted to try out the water slides. And it was just wonderful. These groups of grannies and groups of threes and fours going down these massive water slides, 100 years old. Yeah, it's wonderful to see, seeing them just become so rejuvenated. Yeah, one's 102 years old, and quite recently, it was, she thought she'd lost all of her siblings in the Paul Pot days since, and she hadn't seen them since 76, 77. And just last year, we found her older sister, who was 104, who was living in the provinces, so we reunited them. Actually, BBC did a story on that, and it was wonderful to see. Oh, my goodness, that really is a beautiful thing. Oh. them talking about the old times and lots of tears 102 and 104 and they're like two schoolgirls sitting on the mattress together talking about their um childhood and people and other siblings by that sort of a sense of contentment Mm. so what is it like now when you go back to LA do you ever have a sense of 
I guess this other parallel life that you could have led if you had decided to just leave Cambodia, send some money back once in a while and remain in your job? I don't think I could. I just can't imagine what it would be like. The good thing about coming here is I can exhale. I lose the sense of intensity dealing with um, just the, the nature of my job. You gravitate towards the worst situations, sick, abuse, uh, potentially crimes, um, people in hospital, critical illnesses. So getting away from the intensity is wonderful. It's been two years because of COVID, of course, been in there. So that's great to exhale. And um, there, are, there are really moments I get struck by how much I did give up because I, you know, I was so happy, really good friends. My big love was my, besides my two dogs, was my boat in the harbour. So my friends and I, my buddies get over to Catalina and drink beer and jump in the water, go scuba diving. And that was great. That was a good life. And, you know, these days my weekends are in a landfill. So a bit different. <laughs> you can put aside a bit at moments of missing it, but certainly no regrets. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it strikes me that, you know, you went from a modest start in Australia to super high-flying Hollywood exec to philanthropist in Cambodia. You've done all sorts of things. You've struggled for money and you've been affluent. You've been unemployed and you've been successful. Through all of this, what have you learned about what it means to live life well? Uh, well, it really is all perspective. It's it's wrong to think of it in levels of happiness because happiness is very um, fleeting. It's a little um, abstract. And I was very happy in Los Angeles. But the depth of uh, experience, soul, gratitude for what I've been able to receive, it's just so profound. I'm so glad I went through all the different stages um, being working class. Well, I, I thought it was working class till I went to Cambodia. Uh, from working class to this Los Angeles uh, life, lived it fully, and then being able to use the money I earned to set up this charity. And it's phenomenal now. We've got 30,000 people seeing free medical treatment, maternal care for the mothers. And these are, they all came from personal experience, seeing mothers who died after childbirth. So having a maternal care program, we've never lost a mother 11 years and 1,500 births. And that's a real joy. 70% of the kids have um, graduated university. And the best part is my evening walkabout, seeing these kids come out of the most squalid conditions, so full of happiness and joy, and seeing the mothers for the first time having a sense of pride in their children, being able to see their children, essentially. Because, you know, I'm so happy to see them. I'm proud of them. So by extension, the mother starts to pay attention and realizes something special. And yeah, it's that joy amongst the, all the trash that really is just uh, makes it all worthwhile. Joy among the trash. That's a perfect soundbite. <laughs> Finding joy among the trash. That can be, that can be the title of your autobiography. <laughs> I'm running barefoot across all this sludge and muck and jump on me. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing, that level of trust and care and gratitude. In one interview with you, I read um, this quote from you that you said, what if I hadn't gone to Cambodia? What if I hadn't done this? It really scares me. I'm pretty sure now I would feel like I haven't done enough with my life. So do you feel like the key to feeling that you've done enough is always rooted in helping others in some way? Like, do you think that there can be, there can be satisfaction without like some level of, of sacrifice and also of, of giving? I don't. I think all a sense of uh, satisfaction, contentment is 
is in giving. I really don't, I don't know of a way to find that level of contentment except in helping others, whether it's in a, a, a broad way or whether it's just part of a, your, your life or something you do on weekends. I mean, giving is where I think people are, would find joy, especially in today's society when you've got such a facile social media, um, polarized country. Being able to give and help others it transcends politics, all the nonsense you're reading in papers, social medias, blogs. It just transcends it all. It's just so pure. There's a purity about it that I think is uh, essential. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Scott, your passion is so infectious. It, thank you so much. I can't do it justice. You really, really have to come and see it for yourself, just the, the joy and um, how much can be accomplished. I would love to do that one day. I've still, I've been to Southeast Asia extensively, but I've never been to Cambodia. So it's still on my list and I would love to visit. And how can people get involved with their Cambodian Children's Fund? Uh, it's cambodianchildrensfund.org. There's so many different ways, even just uh, writing, dropping emails, uh, words of encouragement. If you can afford it, I'd really sponsor a child. We have this great program where when you sponsor it, um, there's a, an obligation to have correspondence to and fro and video calls because in many cases the child needs a stable adult figure and um, those sponsors tend to stick around for 5, 10, 15 years. Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. That's a cultural contrast between the child and the sponsor. Before you go, do you have time for a quick fire round? Yes. What's the one thing that you believe every person should experience in their lifetime? Um, I think you need to find a, uh, a world perspective that's um, in total contrast to where they are now. So just seeing how another part of the world lives, both culturally and the wealth gap, um, religion, all those areas, it builds tolerance and appreciation. Um, what's the one thing you never, ever travel without? Oh, my goodness. Um, aside from passport, credit card, it was it was um it's generally a towel a towel I always take much like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe um a towel and um a pair of jeans I guess that's all I need everything else tends to happen organically. Wait, a towel? Yes. Did you ever read Hitchhiker's Guide to the? Do you know what I didn't? That's a classic. I didn't read. <laughs> I said you have to have a towel. You can use it for this. He's got a whole list of things. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it's um, keeping mosquitoes off when you're sleeping, going down to the beach, keeping off the sun, away from the sun, everything. That is true. That is true. I guess I have like a um, like a Turkish bath towel that I bring when I travel. Same, same. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite place to visit? Well, right now it's Los Angeles because I can make trips back, but I love getting back to Phnom Penh. I really do love the um, life down by the landfill. It's what I where I get the greatest joy, which is odd, but that's how it is and of course Scotland I do have an affinity with the the culture and the country yes the homeland (laughs) Uh, do you prefer to do a planned itinerary or spontaneous exploration when you travel Uh, spontaneous definitely spontaneous yeah especially after this experience yeah spontaneous is good got to be open to serendipity (laughs) absolutely yes what is your favorite hotel if you have one oh my um at the moment, there's a very, there's a wonderful place for the last two years during COVID. I've been going down to the coast and staying in a, a place near the beach in Kep, the Samania Hotel. 
very unpretentious, very basic, but just nice gardens and view. So I do like that a great deal. Top tip for somebody who wants to visit Cambodia or top tips? Bring mosquito repellent because there's dengue and uh, chaturanga and malaria and other things. Um, and get out of the city, go and see the countryside. Get someone who can translate and go into the remote areas. It's, uh, it's a wonderful bonding experience. Really is spectacular. Do you have a recommendation for a book, podcast or film for a long journey? Oh, my. Uh, the book I liked most when I was traveling was um, The Snow Leopard by Peter Matheson. That was one I read when I was in uh, Nepal trekking through the mountains. And um, the story is just so beautifully written. I think it's one of the I think it's one of the best written books I've read. Yeah, The Snow Leopard's definitely one. Snow Leopard. All right, that's on my list now. And finally, where is next on your bucket list? My bucket list? Um, I want to go back and spend time in Scotland and write a book, even if it's only for myself. I want to record everything and all the experiences, good, bad, surprising lessons. I want to find a few months of uh, downtime to start writing. I love that. I see you in a nice little cosy cabin in the mountains and the highlands. <laughs> Overlooking a lock. That's my dream. Overlooking a lock somewhere in the north, north of Scotland. Amazing. Well, Scott, thank you so much. It's been so great chatting with you. Okay, we'll talk again soon and come visit, please. Yes, I would love to. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.